0: Um, The barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church.
1: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? um, You're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects.
0: Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. I'm your other
2: co-host, Dean Detloff. jingle, jingle. (laughs) it's christmas (laughs) time hey
0: great uh i appreciate you doing the fully work there for that one uh everyone knows it's christmas time well it's not quite christmas time it's still advent but uh i think the jingles are are more than warranted
2: yeah it's christmas time it's not christmas exactly but it is just sort of the the time orbiting christmas um christmas time goes from well in canada it goes from halloween until like just after the new year, I think in the US, uh Thanksgiving sort of pushes
0: it off or it shortens the window. But yeah, it's been Christmas time around here for a while. It's bonkers. I can't believe that. Um The absence of of American Thanksgiving in Canada. uh It just makes it makes uh Christmas so long. I can't believe it. It's so weird.
2: It also makes Thanksgiving so weird because Thanksgiving is in October before Halloween. And it's like what I don't what am I supposed to do with this? I don't know how to do two of these, two holidays in one month and then nothing in November. Yeah, it's out of control. Anyway, there's a, glad. There's a
0: post-liberal theologian out there who's like, ha, oh, yes, of course, the liturgy of <laughs> <Yeah>. the year.
2: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, one one lonely Canadian post-liberal theologian who's like really psyched that that is actually the, uh, the tempo of our civil society. Um, that person is a nerd and I do not want to think about them anymore instead i want to think about (laughs) advent (laughs) um it is the the last advent week before christmas and i think it's the toughest one for this podcast specifically (laughs) a podcast (laughs) about christianity and the left uh if you thought that getting some hope together in week one was tough um if you thought about thinking about peace last week when the u.s was inflating the military budget during a pandemic was difficult uh wait till you hear that this week the theme is joy um that's right it's joy uh i think it's pretty tough to be joyful right now in the face of everything that's going on maybe it's even good to refuse to be joyful who knows i'm not going to tell you how to live your life but we are going to live it in this particular way we did decide that we were going to lean into trying to figure out how to uh embrace the advent themes this year so we're going to go for it we're going to see if we can sort out how to talk about having joy at the end of the world <laughs> when everything is on fire and everything around you in the news looks bad. Uh, how can you even figure it out?
0: Yeah, it is definitely a hard time to be joyful. And um, in this podcast, we're going to really go through it. We're going to go through some, uh, we'll paint a picture of the end of the world, what it looks like at this moment, <laughs> this ending of the world, at least. Yeah. You never know it, it could always end in a different way in the future, but uh <laughs> We, we talked about, you know, peace and hope as sort of political ideas. Um, but I think we're going to do something very similar with joy. Um, it is very hard. I'm sorry. It's very easy to just like, I don't know, throw your hands up, see how bad things are, and kind of, I don't know, think of it all as a wash, maybe. Mm-hmm. But um, if you think about joy in the context of politics, there's actually something really subversive about joy. Uh, that I think that we can maybe talk through here in light of all of the bad things that are happening. Um, you know joy in this like maybe subversive sense is that like um, things are very bad. the people who are in power are doing very bad things to you and will end up you know harming a lot of people. but there's still a sense in which uh, you know that's not the last word I think on on mm-hmm. history, right uh, <laughs> things are over, the struggle is not finished. Um, I'm feeling very evangelical saying these things out loud, <laughs> but, uh, but you get what I'm saying, right? There's this like sense in which uh, if you are, you know, if you have a sort of sense of joy, uh, you still believe that the world can be transformed, that uh, things don't have to end the way that they are you know, laid out before you. So uh, in this episode, we're going to talk through the bad things. Uh, we're going to we're going to get you to your like like a great Thursday night at church camp. We're going to get you to your lowest point and tell you about all of the bad <laughs> things in the world. And then we're going to bring you up to the high, the highest heights and tell you about joy and uh, the revolution that is still possible, I guess. Uh, Dean, what do you think? Is that OK?
2: I think it's OK. Yep. Take me there. Get me as low as I can go, Matt. I'm going to let you take the
0: elevator down and uh, maybe I'll try to bring us back up. We'll see. All right. All right. Um, I'll do my best here. OK, so uh, let's see. How do we want how how can we start painting the dystopia that that our world is right now? Um, I think that uh, th- this idea kind of first struck me about joy earlier today when I read this Vox article called The World as We Know it is Ending. Why are we still at work? Um I read that while I, while I was working and it made me ask some pretty tough existential questions. <laughs> why am I doing this? <laughs> no, it's just kidding. I know why. But anyways, um it, it's a really uh it's a very sort of funny uh framing of the question um and it's projecting a little bit and maybe being a bit melodramatic, but that's okay. Um a little melodrama is not bad every now and again. But I think it's a it's an interesting question, right? Like um uh, how work gets done in uh, coronavirus pandemic time um, is a very interesting and like um, kind of now just sort of uh, assumed answer. People just go go to work and kind of keep working through it. But if you'll recall, there was a time <laughs> when people did not just assume that you're going to keep working. Um, you know, like restaurants were closed, stores were very limited uh, in the times they were open. Everyone, uh, everyone with sort of a white collar job was working from home. Um, everyone else, you know, was working, but sort of in limited capacities. And there was like this time where it seemed like, you know, even, even the progressives in the United States were suggesting that the government should just pay people to stay at home so that, um, you know, we could like get some distance, uh, from COVID. And in retrospect, that seems all very utopian, uh, based (laughs) on where we are now. So, um, To maybe get a better picture of this, I'm going to read uh, the opening paragraphs and then the concluding paragraph of this article and maybe talk through it a bit. The article starts off like this. A novel coronavirus was sweeping the globe, and leaders and experts recommended that the U.S. pay millions of people to stay at home until until the immediate crisis was over. These people wouldn't work. They'd hunker down, take care of their families, and isolate themselves to keep everyone safe with almost the whole economy on pause the virus would stop spreading and Americans could soon go back to normalcy with relatively little loss of life obviously that didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> instead white collar workers shifted over to zoom often with you know kids in the background which man that sucked um and everybody else was forced to keep showing up to their jobs in the face of a deadly virus hundreds of thousands of people died um right uh, i think as of a few days ago it's uh, 800,000 people in the united states mm. Countless numbers of people descended into depression and burnout, and a grim new standard was set. Americans keep working even during the apocalypse. Okay, um, that, that's the opening of the paragraph, and I want to read kind of the concluding sentiments because I think it's kind yeah. of, it just hammers home the point. Uh, so the article ends like this. Overall, surviving the disaster of the 21st century will require a new kind of strength from Americans, not the dogged persistence to keep doing our jobs while the world falls down around us, but the empathy and generosity to come together and to stop the collapse. As Jacob Reams put it, who's a historian, nothing is possible when we all have to pretend to be independent all the time, which is a great uh, ending line. Mm. But you get the kind of gist of the article just from these paragraphs alone. Um, at the beginning, we had these like very, <laughs> I don't know, lofty ideas about how we would handle coronavirus, COVID. I don't know why I call it coronavirus. Like, I don't know, <laughs> no one says that anymore. <laughs> how we'd handle COVID as like, a society. And those ideas did not pan out whatsoever. Um, and in fact... I mean things are just bad and they still are bad, right? Um but the uh the suggestion at the end is like, I don't know, something has to give, people have to change the way they think about things, um, to practice a different type of, you know, way of life. But uh not seeing a lot of that honestly on the rise neither. But um <laughs> the uh <laughs> the suggestion is not falling on deaf deaf ears. I'm all about it right now. I think that sounds uh, like a good plan but okay so this is maybe one piece of the very bad landscape that we we got going right now um COVID is bad um but uh no one's boss th- thinks it's so bad that you shouldn't show up for work and mm-hmm. that's the that's the thing like I, I guess it's even so bad that like uh, I've, I've seen some news articles recently using the phrase post-pandemic as if the pandemic mm-hmm. is over or you know like um all of the the quote unquote essential workers who might have been making a few extra bucks uh you know of hazard pay or whatever that's all sort of ended what i'm trying to say is everyone's boss thinks that the pandemic is over right. um while it you know actually is still very bad
2: yeah i uh, i even saw just recently a tweet that was like somebody saying if you have a a bad cold or you know you feel yucky or whatever i don't even care if you have a negative test just stay home and uh there was like a number of kind of i don't know progressive v type people that I saw on my Twitter feed sort of retweeting it in a celebratory way. but I thought to myself, um, to say something like that without also saying like and that's why we need paid sick days <laughs> is like a really good encapsulation maybe of the the limitation of uh the political imagination in the u s um even the the people on the you know the leftish side are kind of moralizing rather than strategizing and that's a, a dangerous precedent for for bad times.
0: Yeah, totally. Um no paid sick leave, no like family leave, uh right. nothing. Everyone just kind of has to show up to work. Um man, I I feel like whatever whatever bad situation does exist in the United States is always sort of multiplied uh by 10 if you talk about Missouri, um where mm. I live. Um there's all kinds of uh politicians here who are Um, pushing to overturn mask mandates. Um, So uh, in a handful of places in Missouri, like schools no longer can mandate masks. Um, So like kids can't wear them or I mean, you know, kids can wear them, but like no one's going to make anyone do it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of kids just won't, um, which is bad. But also it means that like a lot of um, like COVID mitigation stuff ends up just kind of falling to the wayside. Like, I don't know if, um, if, if uh, local authorities can't really make laws about um, mask wearing, they also can't make laws about, uh, you know, if you if you ha- you can't come to school if you have COVID or whatever. Right. So now mm-hmm. it, that, that's that been happening and like schools been closing. It's been a whole thing. All that to say, um, yeah, I mean, like the reactions, the reactions people have to the pandemic at this point are just like willful, willful ignorance or, you know, or wishing it's over or um Or just kind of being okay with like some people dying while they sort of remain safe. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, COVID is still bad, I guess. It's still Hmm. a complete horror show.
2: So we've gone down one floor here on this elevator to bad news at the bottom. Um, Why don't you take us down one more floor again, Matt? Uh, Start bringing us to the bottom so that we can build back better when we get there. (laughs) Oh my
0: god. (laughs) <laughs> OK, yeah, well, the next the next bad, bad floor, <laughs> the next rung down the ladder of uh, of a joyless dystopia is some, I guess, some news about climate change. I mean, it's bad, right? We've been talking about the IPCC reports. We've been talking about, um, I don't know, all kinds of different things around climate catastrophe and change and and how that might shake out. Anyways, I saw this article. Uh, it, it was it's from. Well, this, this makes this means nothing. It was from yesterday. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> the uh, the title is the Antarctic ice shelf could crack, raise sea by feet within decades. Scientists warn. <laughs> Some real apocalyptic kind of stuff. Um, okay, so there's a the article is not that long. It's from NBC and it's really just kind of a pretty quick gloss. But I'll read this, these parts of it here. An Arctic ice shelf could crack and disintegrate within the next decade, allowing a Florida sized glacier to slide into the ocean and raise sea levels by feet. The uh, glacier is called Thwaites. Thwaites is the widest glacier in the world and has doubled its outflow speed within the thirty within the last thirty years. That means it's like moving faster towards the ocean than it has been mm-hmm. previously. um and when they get to the ocean, it's bad because like that's when they melt uh, and raise sea levels, et cetera. Um okay, some stuff going on there. Um, so then uh, a scientist uh, from the Cooperative Institute uh, for Research in Environmental Sciences says this, if Thwaites were to collapse, it would drag most of West Antarctica ice with it. So it's critical to get a clear picture of how the glacier will behave over the next 100 years. So um, it is a pretty big deal. You don't want this to happen for a lot of reasons. Um, ice... Melting it raises the sea level, which displaces humans, which causes you know climate refugees and it does all kinds of other awful things to the larger sort of like chains and webs of like food and ecosystems and stuff it also like when um ice melts, it also releases whatever carbon like or whatever might be like frozen within the ice, so that's also bad um but I guess all all this to say that like um the I don't know the things that you hear about in like horror movies or like uh, natural disaster movies or that you read about in, I don't know, textbooks at school, like are actually going to happen. And you kind of have sort of scientific evidence that this is occurring um, and it's going to happen quick. So uh, scientists are kind of figuring out not really. I mean, I guess they could try to figure out how to stop it. That'd be cool. It'd be a huge feat of engineering for sure to do that. But also like just trying to figure out like what it's going to do, I think, is kind of like the more terrifying part.
2: Yeah, it'd be a huge feat of engineering and also a huge feat of, like, public and political will. Um, especially when the world's, like, most dangerous emitter is also full of, like, elected climate change deniers. So yeah. uh, hard hard to figure that out. Um, yeah, this kind of stuff is always hard for me to get my head around. Maybe that is by design in some ways I can't really tell but it's like difficult to imagine what you can even do about situations like that like we spoke about when we talked about the IPCC report right um hard to really think about it in any other way that doesn't just devolve into like socialism or barbarism I guess you know the old uh, Marxist cliche in that way um except in this it's not just barbarism it's like socialism or ecocide or something uh, I don't know Bad news. You're right, Matt. Uh, we've gone another floor down and the situation is getting worse. How are we going to find joy in such a terrible, terrible elevator?
0: Yeah, let me give a quick plug here. Uh, I thought this was a particularly uh, I mean, this is a really, a really scary thing for sure. It's like like you said, uh, socialism or side. It is like a huge existential threat to the entire world <laughs> in, in the worst way. Um, but I guess I thought this was really interesting because this exact thing is something that happens in the Kim Stanley Robinson book, The the oh. Future. Oh. <laughs> so I don't know; it's a very weird, um, a very weird thing to see something in a science fiction book intersect with reality so acutely. I think that's really mm. a big bummer. <laughs> um, in the Kim Stanley Robinson book, though, uh, it is very funny because they figure this whole situation out. Um, basically, the the, sol- the solution in the book is that they, uh, well, okay, so there's this like. Um, there's like this like sort of uh uh united nations organ put together called the ministry for the future and they they have like basically unprecedented political power in the world and uh they are able to drive most of like the oil companies kind of like basically out of business so instead of um instead of them like all losing their jobs they they hire the oil companies to Um, use their oil pumps that they usually use to pump oil out of the you know the seafloor or whatever to pump water out from underneath the um, from from underneath the glaciers so the glaciers would stop sliding so fast (laughs) but i guess like that's that's to me like such a troubling thing right like um it's interesting because like you know in science fiction you get to read all kinds of like kind of fantastical um wild but like maybe plausible solutions to something and i don't know i don't know if that really is plausible or not i'm not an engineer to know but it's such a wild thing because it's like um that might be the answer and it's probably impossible you know to do uh, so it is, uh, a, a, such a weird thing though to see kind of like repeat itself in real life. Um, mm-hmm. after just uh, having read a big book about it, so
2: man, of all the sci fi things that could have come to life, um, I don't like that one. That one is not only <laughs> bad news but also boring. I want something exciting, some aliens have to get involved here. Um, I want Men in Black maybe to come to life, you know. I don't know. This is an aside. Probably shouldn't talk about it in this podcast. We should save it for the walk-in. I was just going to say something about men in black and immigration, but uh, yeah, I'll save it. it. It's not, it's not the time. <laughs> an incredible teaser
0: for the lock-in. Whatever that is that <laughs> you're going to say, I, people are probably on the game.
2: <laughs> I'm definitely going to forget by the time we get around to it. So I'm sorry to disappoint in advance, but <laughs> men in black and immigration. I don't know. See what that does for you specifically dear
0: listener. <laughs> see what it does. Okay. Um, let's go. This isn't, I don't know if this is uh this is like an adjacent <laughs> rung on the ladder. This is another ladder <laughs> sitting by the climate change one. It's hard to tell. Um, but this is another bad thing that's going to happen. Um, hopefully you're ready for it, Dean. I <laughs> imagine you are. Okay, so uh let's see towards the be well, towards like in November last year, uh, if you'll recall, there was an election. <laughs> to see who's going to be the president. If it was going to be Joe Biden or this big orange Cheeto that we all hate so very much, Donald Trump, um, (laughs) if it's going to be grandpa ice cream or this big orange Cheeto. And, uh, it turns out that Joe Biden won and we did have a few episodes where we talked about, like, I don't know what's Joe Biden doing. What could this possibly mean for politics? We were trying to be like smart, smart, lend and kind of figuring out like the electoral scene and maybe what it, what it had to say for socialists or what socialists could say about it or something. Right. Mm -hmm. Anyways, um, You know, Biden has all these these plans about um, labor and the minimum wage and all kinds of other things. And I got to say, they didn't exactly pan out, and that's putting it lightly. Um, But there was a a pretty large social safety net plan that Joe Biden was really putting together. Uh, everyone's, um, Everyone's fave. Bernie Sanders was behind it at the beginning. This thing called the Build Back Better plan. Um, but it's, it was this like gigantic social safety net, um, plan that would do all kinds of, you know, pretty good things for people, materially speaking. Um, at the beginning, you know, it was, um, I couldn't remember. It was like $7 trillion or whatever. It was just like, you know, uh, an ungodly amount of money, but it was like for something that wasn't bombed. So that was pretty cool to me (laughs) anyways. The uh, If you're following the news around this whole thing at all, you'll know that uh, recently uh, Joe Biden, the president, uh, he says that, well, you know, this big thing, uh, this big bill that's been kind of whittled down over time, um, they wanted to pass it before Christmas. They wanted to pass it before the new year, but now it doesn't seem like it's going to uh, come to a vote until after the new year, which is a pretty big problem um, within this whole um plan uh within this the social safety net sort of legislation you know you get things like um like extending the child tax credit which has been a really essential um source of income for people with children um especially low income people um you got things like um paid family leave and paid sick leave um, earlier on, um, this is kind of not related to build back better directly, but you know, you have things like rental assistance and stuff even, um, but all of this is sort of gone and we're not going to see any of it sort of, <laughs> we're not going to see any of it sort of renewed or reinjected into the, our, our political situation until at least after, uh, Christmas and hmm. still, I mean, like who knows what will happen after Christmas, right? It, it all kind of hinges on like a, a handful of very, um, heartless politicians being dumb, <laughs> So, I don't know. Um, I mean, will it get passed eventually? I honestly don't know. Um, it could completely tank it could not maybe it could maybe it'll pass. I don't know. Uh, it seems like Democrats are going to try to also start pushing a, a different type of legislation about voting rights, and maybe that will pass, which I mean it's also important too, but all I'm trying to say is that like this thing that they wanted to move very quickly on is now not happening, and it's going to have you know pretty bad ramifications for like working people in the United States. Hmm. Um, I saw a tweet today from Bryce Covert, who's uh, some kind of journalist. Um, I don't know much about them. They're probably fine. I don't know. The tweet <laughs> was good, though. <laughs> so they said, we're heading into this winter um, with Omicron, with the Omicron wave without expanded employment benefits, without any guarantee of paid sick leave. Um, the like paid protection or um, paycheck protection plan is over. Rental assistance has stopped flowing in some states and there's no federal eviction moratorium. So there's like no safety net. Right. And this is, I think, uh, this is as bad as it gets politically. You know, at the very, at the very top of the the episode, I was talking about all the bad things that happened uh, around work and COVID, and you know, people sell the show up for work. Um, and I don't know, it's going to be more of the same. Um, all of the most basic necessities that like basically every other country has, like paid sick leave, uh, you know, we're not going to get in the United States. We're not going to see it. Evictions are going to keep happening, and it's going to be awful, right? So um, that's bad. That's it's hard to find joy in that situation.
2: Yeah. More like build back bummer. Am I right? Yeah, hey man, put you're, that right. One on your, you're right. You can put that one on your stationery and send it to Joe Biden and see if that gets you anywhere. I mean, um, uh, and
0: <laughs> uh, Joe Biden, for as bad as he is, a person who I don't personally like that much. I mean, this isn't necessarily his fault. Um, but it's also not not his fault, too. And then that's fine. It, it's just like <laughs> it's all of these different like raging and roiling politicians yeah. just like doing something that, that like clearly they know what they should be doing. Right. Like this is not even that <laughs> that extensive. It's like been it's like only one point seven trillion dollars now. It's come down so far. And like clearly nothing is nothing that radical is even kind of in this. But they are resisting to do the right thing. Um hmm. And I don't know, Joe Biden needs to (laughs) take him out for ice cream or whatever and (laughs) tell him what to do. Uh, But it doesn't seem like uh, I don't know. Um, They're going to go on Christmas break and uh, a bunch of people are going to get evicted during Christmas or whatever. And I don't know that's that's all there's going to be to it.
2: Yeah, that is not good. And I don't like it. Um, Maybe now that we're kind of at the bottom floor here of all these bad things, I hope at least unless you have some other secret bad stuff to uh, tell me about in a minute. Um, (laughs) There's always more. There's always more, but it's good to also pull the camera back a little bit from the U.S. and contextualize all this kind of stuff more globally, too. Right. Like um, even in Canada, where I am, which I said is truly marginally better for sure than the U.S. Uh, here, too, many of the things in that tweet that you just said are not present anymore. Right. We had like a pretty extensive um, government assistance program that did pay a lot of people, not enough, uh, for sure, but definitely not nothing to stay home. Um, that has evolved in ways that have made it definitely less accessible than it was. Uh, rental assistance is not present. Evictions are back on, uh, pretty much across the entire country. And our numbers now are like skyrocketing pretty quick. And there's no real talk, at least, that I've seen of any kind of response in the news to that federally or provincially. Um, and even to expand a little bit further, you know, the these kind of um, variants are only going to proliferate as like the world continues to hoard vaccines in the first world as uh, distributions of um vaccines and other kind of COVID health measures and so on are not really equitably shared uh, around the global South and and so on. And I think that is really important, right. To always be kind of realizing that these are global issues and um, what sort of (laughs) like for all the bad things that happens in the United States, it will have like, you know, several other knock on effects in countries where people are worse off and poorer and already, uh, struggling to, to deal with the effects of the pandemic. So all that to say, um, Matt, we're at the bottom. It feels bad. And oh my gosh, I'm starting to think of things that make it feel even
0: worse. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's, it's really hard to, um, see past the dystopia. It's hard to see past all of the very bad things, but it's still somehow important. I think to figure out, you know, how to comport yourself towards all of that horror uh, there is a pretty significant, I think, vibe generally in, in the United States. I'm sure it exists in Canada too. That sort of, I don't know, nihilism is sort of the option, maybe if not, uh, not in name, in, in, in comportment in, uh, in practice, at least, you know, Um I'm sure no one out there is just like saying they're saying they're a nihilist, but, uh, at the same time, that's how a lot <laughs> of people do act for sure. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's a good thing, though, to think through how to figure out these situations. I mean, they have political solutions for sure, but sometimes those political solutions seem really difficult. Um, like we talked about last week, that hope is on a tightrope, and the tightrope is extremely, <laughs> I don't know, precarious. <laughs> <laughs> but but there's something, um, uh, but you know. Uh, I guess politics aside uh christianity gives us a certain type of way of being in the world that is not despairing that's not nihilistic and it's it's something else right there's a a different sort of feeling so um and joy is exactly the 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 idea that we're trying to get at here right this week in advent uh we're supposed to be focused on joy and what what does it mean that um that Mary can can sing the Magnificat, and Luke. What does it mean that Jesus is coming um, and is going to live? You know, a really <laughs> live as a worker uh, and sort of preach to the to the least of these. What does that joy mean in in the midst of all the horror?
2: Yeah, you know, the thing that came to my mind even as you were just saying that was uh, Paul Verilio, a really weird French person <laughs> that we talk about on this podcast a handful of times. Um, he is a Roman Catholic and also, uh, I don't know, has a very um, bleak view of the the kind of society that we have now, which he sees as like totally militarized and um, not, not good. Uh, there was a really interesting interview I remember reading with him where somebody was asking him about him being a Christian and he was like, yeah, you know, like, the crucifixion, all that stuff. It's there. It's part of the faith. But he said he, he described himself as being like an incarnation Christian that, uh, for him, um, Christmas was always more important than Easter. And he had this quote about, uh, sort of like where Mary appears to people in history. And he said, it's always where danger grows. And it's those kind of like apparitions or like moments of presence or affirmation that like God is present in creation through the incarnation that's kind of what like gives him some way of sort of coping with the bleakness of his own articulation of the world. And if you ever read read Paul Virilio, it's like, man, if uh, listening to a few minutes of this podcast makes you feel a little bummed out, like <laughs> really will make you feel very bad. <laughs> so, uh, I think, but there's something that's always kind of stuck with me about that, right? That for Virilio, it's like Mary appears where danger grows. So if danger is growing, you know, you can sort of count on the person who sings the Magnificat to, to be there or, uh, uh, the incarnation functions in this really interesting way as like a uh, a pressure valve, maybe to uh, let some of that pressure out. Right. And to say, OK, what would it mean to say God is with us or something in the middle of all that that danger? So, yeah, it's good to maybe pivot now to talking a little bit about joy and, and sorting that out with uh, knowing that the more danger there is, the more chance maybe there is <laughs> for something else to happen.
0: yeah. Something else to happen or that that joy uh, can give you the upper hand in a situation Mm -hmm. or it can mean something um, symbolic, but also materially important for you and and the people that are struggling with you. Mm -hmm. Um, I think like it's really hard to talk about joy in the sense of Christmas. I mean, um, you know, the incarnation for sure uh, is a big theological idea, but there's also lots of um, ideas about eschatology kind of wrapped up in joy. Mm -hmm. In advent yeah in advent for sure right (laughs) it's like uh okay i mean paul verilio he's all about christmas not uh, not easter but like uh (laughs) in a lot of ways they're very related holidays and the kind of uh perspective they're supposed to give you about you know time and the world and whatever thinking through that a bit though you can see the ways that like uh christian like this sort of like idea of joy in advent is really wrapped up in in the eschatology of like um, you know, God, God sort of has the last word in the world, not uh, not all these bad things, right? Like, um, climate change is extremely bad. <laughs> well, this is actually a good Paul Virilio point, maybe, right? Um, uh, through climate change or through nuclear destruction or whatever, the world can end, it could be it can end in one big boom, but that does not mean like the end of creation, it doesn't mean like the mm-hmm. end of time, it doesn't mean like the end of political struggle. Um, he, he Paul Virilio. Uh, this is when this is a a moment in in um in a book a book of interviews called Gray Ecology, where he says that he is um he's not a revolutionary but a revelationary right that these uh, moments where something bad happens uh something is revealed that could be really important to you um in in a political sense or in maybe a religious sense or something but that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about eschatology is like what happens in the end or like when it comes to all of these bad things like what really wins out in the end does the world have this sort of slow devolution towards i don't know um complete destruction is it is it a moment of socialism or barbarism or is there some kind of like better world that is actually possible so eschatology is asking that kind of question and christianity has a real specific answer to that right <laughs> that like uh, at the end of the world, there's sort of the redemption of all people. Um, it's you know the world's reconciled to God, and all these kinds of great things happen. And Christmas is is about that sort of like salvific moment, or it's like the initiating point of that salvific moment in history. Um, but what's interesting about joy is uh, joy in this like sort of eschatological sense is that like um, if you are you know uh, among the oppressed people or whatever, or you've decided to throw your throw in your lot with them. Uh, Joy kind of gives you like this like weird subversive upper hand, um, you know, like you're, you're feeling joyful, you're feeling hopeful, you're feeling peaceful about the world. Um, even when, um, you know, your oppressors think that maybe you shouldn't, when you, they think that they've won, they think that they've beaten you down, they think that you're compliant or whatever. Uh, there's still this sense of joy that can, um, I don't know, get you through those moments and then like figure out what to do in them.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, that reminds me directly of something from Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, a Peruvian liberation theologian who's really interesting and cool and someone we should probably talk about more in this podcast. We talk about a handful of other other liberation theologians. I don't think we ever really get into Gutierrez, which is wild because he's one of the, the main original people involved. Um, but, uh, yeah, he also has a lot of interesting things to say about like the joy of the poor or the particular position of the poor and how that joy, um, kind of like pierces through the, uh, um, you know, the, the dark canopy of oppression, if you will. Uh, I was, uh, actually just looking at this book by Robert McAfee Brown, who was a Presbyterian theologian, really interesting guy. He wrote a ton of stuff about liberation theology. Um, he was from the U S Uh, He wrote a book called Gustavo Gutierrez, An Introduction to Liberation Theology in, I don't know, like the 80s, maybe even 1980. Anyway, um, in it, uh, he has this little section called The Joy of the Poor that I was just looking at as we were thinking about this um, episode. And uh, he summarizes Gutierrez talking about uh, the joy of the poor. Gutierrez was speaking into. Detroit and uh, Robert McCaffey Brown says uh, Gutierrez moved in a direction unanticipated by his largely North American audience. He spoke about the need to recognize the joy of the poor on the lips of a North American speaking out of a life of reflective affluence. The theme would have sounded romantic or callous, but coming from within Gustavo's lifelong immersion in the midst of the poor, it opened new doors to his hearers. It's not enough. He reminded them to recognize only the sufferings of oppressed persons real as they are. It's also necessary to recognize the poor know joy. It is a joy expressed in songs, festivals, poetry, the reenactment of old customs and religious ceremonies. It is a joy that does not ignore or forget past indignities. Indeed, it grows out of them by affirming that they are not the last word. The last word belongs not to indignities, but to God, and the poor know that God's word, however long deferred, is a good word, and that history finally belongs to God, not the oppressor. Uh, And then he goes on to say also a little bit, um, oppressors cannot understand that, uh, cannot understand this laughter of the poor and are unnerved by it. The suffering of others can sometimes elicit compassion and sensitivity, even among those with hardened hearts. But joy, such a response is incomprehensible and even frightening to those whose ears are closed to a message that the future belongs to the poor rather than to them. So this joy is subversive a uh, very cool passage very fun um maybe we can spend some time like breaking that out a little bit uh i i really like um the idea that joy is subversive just by virtue of like not accepting the terms set by uh oppression um and i also like that uh joy it is subversive maybe precisely because it's not necessarily setting out to be subversive like it's just kind of you know you can't necessarily stamp out the light <laughs> totally from people. It's it's a, a fact of life and, and what it means is, you know, there's always gonna be a, a trace that sort of didn't get, you know, thrown into the the fire of oppression or something. And that's a really helpful, important word, I think.
0: Yeah, I think that is that's that's good. A good place to start with it. You know, there are um there are two places, I mean, amidst all these bad things that I was just kind of reading out a bit ago, there are two places I've seen like real legitimate joy. I think that has been um pretty revolutionary i guess in the way it's been expressed in the last few weeks um so one of them this is i mean kind of like a something i just saw unfold online but um this big coalition of activists in Kansas City they were put they started a campaign to um, make sure that when people were evicted they had access to um they not access to they got legal representation hmm. um as it turns out um you, I mean, like you know, if you go to if you go to court for I don't know committing some kind of crime or whatever, you know, and you can't pay for a lawyer, you get like a public defender. Uh, but mm-hmm. when it comes to evictions, uh, you don't, <laughs> and and that sucks. So I mean, the situation actually becomes pretty dire because of course um, your landlord can afford a <laughs> lawyer, <laughs> can afford representation because like they're a landlord, right? And you gave them all your money, so um, of course they can afford it. But uh, people who are being evicted. Um, unsurprisingly cannot afford a lawyer as readily. So anyways, they uh, started this campaign to uh, guarantee legal counsel for people uh, facing eviction. And, like, they pushed really hard, and they won, and they, like, got it. And now Kansas City is, like, one of, like, nine, you know, cities in the country or something like that that uh, guarantees legal counsel to to people facing evictions, which, like, I mean, okay, that's – Maybe the larger story is that like evictions are evil in the first place and like <laughs> they shouldn't exist. And like sure, but like um, you know, as far as tense rights go, as far as like, you know, a campaign in a city, um, it's that's not nothing, right? And mm-hmm. um when when they won, I mean, I don't know, there's all kinds of videos of the the coalition of all the activists like in um, you know, that's like city. City council meeting and they're like losing their minds. They're super happy, right? That's like legitimate joy, and there's a there's a type of revolutionary optimism I think within that that that's exactly sort of what Gutierrez is talking about. Is that like things can be extremely bleak, um, like, um, like an entire country without protection from eviction, um, and people you know constantly getting evicted from their homes, uh, in winter, uh, very near Christmas, I guess, which is uh, seeming seemingly ironic, but um, that they knew that they could fight together and they could win and they could change the world and and well, they could change their city at least, right? Mm-hmm. Um, also too I I was thinking about the um I'm sure everyone's seen them by now, but the uh there are these really fantastic videos after um the Starbucks workers in Buffalo won uh won a union, um which is a pretty big deal as well. I mean, there's all kinds of things to be said about that for sure. But there is these like fantastic videos of of the workers like sitting together and they're watching the uh, NLRB read the read the vote count over zoom and they they learn that they've won the first store and they all just like lose their minds about it right they're jumping up and down and screaming and it's like this like moment where like um the hope that they had you know that struggle that we were talking about last week it kind of comes to fruition and like they win and there's like some there's like some real joy in that as well um but it's it's amazing because it's like you know it's not just that they won this one battle but it's like that they felt empowered enough that they know that like they could probably win other battles too and in fact like anyone could do that were they organized um so i guess to me there's there's something about like joy you know you you see somebody win um some kind of battle some kind of thing right (laughs) and it seems like okay big deal it's like one union big deal it's one city but I think like the recognition in those moments of joy is that like uh, it's not just one one union. It's not just one city. It's like the whole world could be different.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that, too, that that angle of, you know, it's important to create space for joy to be a real thing that we allow ourselves to feel. I think sometimes on the left, uh, there's this kind of feeling that like if it's bad news, it must be true. Or like the most true opinion you can have is the worst picture you can paint (laughs) of the world around you. Right. And there is a real reticence to give yourself over to the vulnerability of, of celebration or like the, a real openness to feeling joyful about it. And I think that that is such a damaging impulse on the left. I mean, it's true. Nobody wants to be a sucker. You know, you don't want to like celebrate something preemptively. You don't want to, um, you know, let your guard down so much that you can't really understand the limitations of the one that you might have had. But at the same time, like, if you can never really lean into that moment of joy, you're also going to have a tough time, not only kind of, I guess, uh building a momentum that that's necessary, but you're also going to have a tough time like being in genuine solidarity with other people in the world who are experiencing that joy all the time, right? Like, uh, you know, you were mentioning these tangible examples. I think that's really helpful. One that I saw recently was um, at Development and Peace. We've been highlighting a, a situation in Honduras where there are some land defenders from the um, the length of people there who were uh, incarcerated under unjust charges. There's there's a bunch of stuff going on in it. Um, it's great. You should, you should go to our website <laughs> and learn about it. It's all very good stuff to know about. Uh, but there was a a video, um, that one of our partners in Honduras released of, of, uh, two of these land defenders being released from jail. Uh, and the video is amazing because it's like, they're coming out to a community that is waiting for them to receive them. And they like, everybody's so pumped and excited about it. Like, they lift them up on their shoulders and they're kind of like crowd surfing with their, you know, pieces of paper saying that they're out. And like, it's such an amazing just, uh, you know, moment of like earned joy, I guess, like uh, joy that is the product of like a lot of struggle and a lot of hope and a lot of refusal to like give up even when, you know, your your friend or your comrade or companero is sitting in a cell. And I think that's really important to sort of let that joy be, you know, some fuel, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, that's the. I I think that's the the joy. The joy is the fuel, is like a a great uh way to sum up sort of like the weird Christian eschatology of uh, or the ways that joy is wrapped up in Christian eschatology, right? Like, um, in, in Christianity, like the end of the world is already set, and like I don't know, bad things could happen, but you know that like whatever, it's not the it's not the last word. It's not the end. Um, that in the end, I mean, like, God wins, and that means, like, that the people win as well. Um, m- maybe in light of all of that, let's read one more bit here from Gustavo Gutierrez. Um, mm-hmm. This is from an interview he did with American Magazine called Remembering the Poor, um, and he says a little bit of something about joy at the very end. So the interviewer asks him, how do you sustain the virtues of joy and hope during difficult times? (laughs) A great question specifically for this podcast right now. (laughs) Um, So Gustavo Gutierrez says this, Christian joy is not tied to a particular object, but to the experience of God's unconditional love for us. Christian joy comes from knowing God and trying to follow God's will. Joy means rejoicing in God. But we can see from the Magnificat that when Mary rejoices in God, she's also celebrating the liberating action of God in history. Mary rejoices in a God who is faithful to the poor. Our service of others may be wrapped up in this joy. Only work embraced with joy truly transforms. So I like this a lot because on the on the one hand, the first the first uh, half of the explanation is like what you might hear in like any kind of church, uh, you know, even not from a, a liberation theologian, right? That. You know, joy is about knowing God and it's about God loving you and uh, God's got your back or whatever. Even even this big sort of like end of history, God's going to reconcile all things to God or whatever. But um, the extra step of adding in the Magnificat, I think, is really important because you have to recognize, too, that when um, (laughs) when when you see these like liberating moments in the world, whether it's like. Um, workers being liberated from their boss, and they win a union, or it's land defenders like winning, <laughs> winning like sort of sovereignty or some type of dignity, uh, or control over their land, or people not, uh, people in the Midwest having the the right to uh, an attorney when they're about to lose their house. Like these are the acts of um, this is this is what the Magnificat is about. This is about the mighty being torn from their thrones. This is about. Um, Uh, about God loving you (laughs) unconditionally is about God at the end of history, reconciling all things to God's self. It's, uh, it's all tied up in these, in these moments, sort of trans historically or something. Maybe that's, that's not a good word to use. I don't know. But, but you get what I'm saying is that like, there's this sort of promissory note in Christianity that things in the end will be sort of reconciled in in a way that is just right. Um, Mm -hmm. And when you see these things actually working out in the world where things are reconciled in the way that are just when people, um, you know, do erupt in joy when they win something, when they win like real justice in the world. Like that's the that's the process of the, the history that Christians are promised.
2: Yeah. And I think, too. OK, so we're kind of identifying like a few angles on joy here, right? We're just talking about sort of the earned joys that you get from the struggle and then also this kind of um eschatological joy or or the the. The joy that you can participate in by, you know, leaning into the belief that things will be different because God is um, helping us get there or whatever. And I think there's also this kind of third joy, maybe or third angle on it, that um, Gutierrez was hinting at that maybe we could pull out a little more. There's another quote that pulls it out further. Um, This is in that uh, Robert McAfee Brown book where he's quoting Gutierrez. He says, uh, the joy of the poor is always a challenge to the powerful and raises questions they are incapable of understanding because all they see is deep suffering, but the poor know how to be joyful, they know how to have parties, and in the religious sphere they know how to celebrate the presence of God. I would wager that the powerful of this world feel more serene when the people are silent, when they are resigned, even when they weep. What is disturbing to them is that the poor laugh in the midst of their situation. And I think that's kind of a uh, maybe just this third angle, because it's like a joy that is not really, um, you know, I said earlier, it's like not setting out to be subversive. It just so happens to be because it's a a proof, I guess, that you can't really erase just that basic experience of human beings getting together. Um, You know, it's this kind of uh, recognition that Joy is something that you work for sometimes, it's the product of a belief sometimes, but it's also just something that, like, is present, and, like, there's something really liberating about that as well, of knowing that, you know, uh, people in power are definitely comfortable if you sort of, you know, if the people that they are lording over are not, um, not, not, not just not compliant, or not just compliant, but also, like, quiet about it, right, <laughs> or, like, sad about it, like, sad people don't rise up, right? But people who do kind of have something to lose or have something to lean into or have that experience of joy or those little flashes of joy to kind of keep them going. um, That is a genuinely sort of dangerous uh, thing that you can't really completely turn off in the world.
0: You heard it here, folks. Um, Christmas is coming. Be joyful and also subsequently be ungovernable, I guess. (laughs) Have such a rowdy Christmas that there's nothing your boss can do about it to ruin it. Um, (laughs) That's right. Maybe that's it. Yeah, I think that's good um all right so we've
2: done it the world is bad things are bad uh times are tough but nevertheless um you can try your best to be joyful and uh if you win maybe you'll even earn it uh if you believe in god if you haven't won yet (laughs) maybe you can that's the the joy hack you can get around it and uh worst case scenario you can't do either of those things you can i don't know play a video game or see a see a baby smile at you (laughs) I don't know whatever whatever does it
0: for you but whatever uh, non-religious people get up to I'm not sure but (laughs) yeah exactly yeah (laughs) uh you can get into that for sure thanks for listening to the Magnificast if you like what you heard you can support us on patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast um there you can uh get a cool invite to our secret discord channel it's not a secret we're talking about it all the time we're never shutting up on this discord channel but you can get there and talk to us I guess uh, you can also get uh, some stickers or uh, oh you, we also have a behind the paywall uh, podcast and we've been slacking on it It's it's been hard, the holidays, it's a tough time but we're joyful in that it's going to happen sometime soon I bet.
2: We'll get back to it one of these days <laughs> uh, we'll get back to it definitely between Christmas and New Year's
0: at least, that's, that's that much I can say yeah absolutely, that's exactly right our intro music is by Amari Armstrong and our outro music is by The Logical Spoon we'll see you next time
1: keep your hoods up And you stay up late In Jackson You keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up And you stay up late Oh, don't mind A cold night But we might mind If you leave too soon So come on now It's still early at least I would